0: Looking to rekindle an old flame, a man moved to a small town in the vast, remote wilderness of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Instead, he's lured into a deadly love triangle that spans multiple states and possibly multiple victims. This week's episode is The Murder of Chris Reagan, Part 1. Up in the night, your heart fills with dread. Probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. I'm gonna kill you. Well, this is one that was... Suggested to us by uh, so many uh, folks through our uh, Sinisterhood.com contact form that as we were looking through them, it was just repeatedly listed off as something to cover, probably because a recent 2020 came out about this.
1: And there's also a 2018 Netflix docuseries that covers this case very thoroughly that we'll be referencing throughout as well. So there's been a couple things in the past few years that have mm-hmm. brought this case back into the spotlight. Definitely. We had a uh,
0: the docuseries, it's called Dead North, like Christy says, and there's a book also called Where Monsters Hide. And that is the same title of the 2020 special that came out in June of this year. So that is, we'll explain in part two where that title comes, Where
1: Monsters Hide. And it is from a disturbing source. This whole case is disturbing. I wasn't familiar with this, and already it is one that I know will stick with me. We're breaking it up into two parts because there's a lot to cover in this one. So in the first part, we'll give you kind of all the background of everybody and how things left off.
0: Yeah. And then and part that's two, All I'll say, yeah, now. more the trial and, and the aftermath. But this is you're right. It's definitely one that's going to stick with us, especially his life was so hopeful. And then his death was so senseless for. Yeah. What we'll see is some monstrous people involved in
1: this case. Absolutely. Well, thank you to everybody that sent this in as a suggestion. Like Heather said, if you have one, go to SinisterHood.com slash contact. And there's uh, three different buttons there. You can either submit
0: a main feed episode like this one, submit a Freaky Friday story if you have one, or a Patreon content segment. So they're all there at sinisterhood.com contact.
1: I had to pause and throw it to you because I honestly, there's so many tabs that I forget what tab does what.
0: Well, I like
1: uh, a website
0: as I used to make them in fifth grade for the Backstreet Boys <laughs> fan websites I used to make. So that's uh, where my web designing skills come in. So I think you should contact them.
1: I feel like they probably are due for a, a, refresh, a refresh, a rebrand, and you're just the person to help.
0: I'll contact them and GeoCities, which is where I used to design my websites and see <laughs> if we can work out a deal. But
1: Oh, I bet GeoCities would love anybody to work out a deal with yeah, them. Nobody's been asking.
0: <laughs> they're happy to have that knock at the door, but yeah, go, go to our lovely designed website. It's not a GeoCities website. And you can also submit cases like this that we hadn't heard of and uh, that we are uh, glad to dive into if only to kind of parse out the information and evidence and what happened here.
1: I'm always interested in cases I've never heard of before. And sadly there's millions. Oh yeah. One thing that I, I mean, it's, Probably an obvious thing to state, but doing this now for so many years, it always surprises me yet again just how much crime there is. Like there is mm. a never ending pool of true crime that we could cover truly. And also just the capacity for
0: evil that people have, Mm because we've covered so many cases where the perpetrator is nasty. I mean, they, uh, the word devil has been thrown around about this perpetrator in this case, you know, pure evil. And you think all the cases we've covered before of like, we've seen the worst of the worst. And then when you hear about some of the things, so to that extent, this is uh, it's obviously has murder in the title of the episode, but this is definitely one of a, a more kind of gruesome crimes i think just to the capacity for evil that some people have
1: well with that being said i'm christy i'm heather and let's get into it known for its scenic views fantastic hiking and some of the most impressive waterfalls in north america the treasure trove of nature referred to as the upper peninsula is located in the uppermost part of michigan near the canadian border called upers People that live in the UP appreciate the unspoiled beauty and privacy the land offers. Located in the western part of the UP is Iron River, a picturesque town with a population of around 3,000. Christopher Carl Reagan was a lifelong Michigander who spent 20 years in the U.S. Air Force. Standing at six foot one with blonde hair and blue eyes, one of the earlier places Chris found himself stationed was Sawyer Air Force Base in the state's Upper Peninsula. There, he met schoolteacher Terry O'Donnell. Though the two struck up a relationship after meeting at a bar, when Chris was relocated, that relationship ended. He had married another woman and had two sons, Chris Jr., his oldest and a younger son. Chris and the mother of his two children were divorced in 2010. Shortly after, he reconnected with Terry via Facebook. Terry still lived in the UP, and Chris decided to move there to be closer to her, even renting an apartment from Terry's parents. Terry told interviewers on the show Lady Killers,
0: Everybody loved him.
1: With his military background, Chris took a job at a defense and mining equipment manufacturing company called Oldenburg Group. Described by his former boss as a
0: Very smart, very sharp individual.
1: He quickly rose in the ranks to supervisor and team leader, a promotion that some more tenured employees felt was unfair.
0: Well, and the unfairness, I think, was maybe a little misdirected on their part because, I mean, Chris was a 20-year veteran in the Air Force. He retired as a master sergeant. They said he was extremely uh, dot his T's, cross his I's, precise. And so coming in even just as a a supervisor position or a team lead, you know, lower position, immediately they were all just impressed with him. And in just a few months, they were promoting, promoting till eventually his job was basically overseeing all of their military manufacturing, which on the one hand, you like a lot of responsibility, but if you have kind of a bad knee from an injury and you have to walk around, walk around, walk around, it becomes a little bit uh, detrimental on your body physically.
1: Tedious. It is though, you know, you feel a type of way when you've been working at a place for many, many years and then a new person is hired and is immediately promoted to positions that you were hoping to get.
0: Right, You're like, oh, this guy just swooped in out of nowhere. And it was like, well, he was that good. So, yeah. It's,
1: it's a hard place to be in as Chris, too, because yeah. you immediately have you know, people that don't really like you and you're having to oversee them. And that is always a shitty position to be in. And especially a new guy in a small
0: town of like 3,000.
1: Though, you know, Terry's parents
0: had established that, you know, they own this apartment building, they own the grocery store. So having that connection to Terry probably helped. But yeah, you're right. Being the new guy at work in a small town that everyone's like, ugh.
1: Also the pictures of the UP, gorgeous. Iron River specifically, Oh, my gosh. It's looks like it's out of a nature magazine. There's endless hiking trails, waterfalls, campsites. And if you're into that, like Chris was, then even if, you know, you're not making friends at work, you've got a girlfriend and you've got a lot of outdoor activities to do together.
0: Yeah, he had his camera. They said he would love to go hiking or mountain biking or kayaking and take pictures of everything. So if you're out trying to take pictures, the the wilderness and the landscape that's out there is perfect inspiration. Oh,
1: it's crazy. Yeah. In the years following the divorce, Chris maintained his relationship with his children, especially Chris Jr. Sr. had taught his oldest son to mountain bike at age three, a passion the two shared well into Chris Jr.'s adult life. For a few weeks between apartments, Chris Jr. stayed with his dad. The two grew closer during that time, sharing stories and memories on the back porch on late nights. It was one of these evening hangouts that Chris Sr. proposed something. The two move away from Michigan together. They both enjoyed the outdoors, cycling, hiking, camping, and swimming. Senior even loved to scuba dive, but the harsh Michigan winters cut their outdoor adventure opportunities short. The two settled on Asheville, North Carolina, where Chris had once been stationed and where they had visited on a family vacation many years earlier. It was settled. Both men would look for work in Asheville, and come late autumn, they would officially make the move in early November before yet another brutal Michigan winter. It's so
0: hopeful when you think like I'm. A, I'm in Chris is in his fifties. He's like fifty three. You know, you have an adult son in their twenties, and you're like, I got a best friend. It's my mm-hmm. best friend. We both love the same and things and a roommate and a roommate, and like we get to move and like live our dream. And they had just all these plans that they had all the places they were going to cycle and hike and go
1: together. Asheville also great city. Oh, gorgeous, gorgeous, very artsy, cool town. So, mm-hmm. yeah. You have all this hopeful, like, you know, a new beginning, a fresh start type of thing, which always makes, you know, loss even that much more difficult. Absolutely. Chris was still dating Terry and working a physically demanding job while planning to move away from Iron River. Terry described the pair as so in love on ABC's 2020. They enjoyed going for walks, having dinner and spending quiet evenings together. However, things didn't last. In July of 2014, Terry was planning a month-long trip to Europe with her family. Before leaving, Terry discovered Chris made plans to hook up with another woman while Terry was gone. When confronted, Chris explained that sex and love were separate, and he still loved Terry, but insisted on being with another woman while she was out of the country. Terry was upset and told the TV series Lady Killers that Chris's decision to pursue a sexual affair while she was out of town ended their relationship. And that's the
0: hard thing, because I think there were, you know, you've met somebody in the 80s, and you kind of always thought, like, oh, what what would have happened? What could have been? The one that got away. Yeah, the one that got away. And then 2014, you know, 20, 30 years later, you see him on Facebook, and it's like, hey, I remember you. And they move there, and you're like, oh, this is, we're settled. This going to but- be it. It sounds like they just, you know, you don't realize in that those early honeymoon days that you might have some fundamental differences in a relationship to work out, like, you know, definition of exclusivity and how you feel about that.
1: Terry is featured heavily in the Dead North series. And just even, you know, after when she's giving these interviews, you can tell how much she really did love Chris and oh, true. really, really, really wanted it to work out. She thought this was it. She'd also been married. They were both divorced, rekindled romance. I totally agree, though. And I would also call it off. It would be a deal breaker if I was going to be gone for a month. Just and like three weeks during that month, the person I was seeing couldn't keep their dick in their pants for one month. I'm also going to call it quits. Right. And
0: I think they had like broken up in April and then this was July, but that she's like, we were getting back together and we were like, okay, we're going to finally get back together except I'm going out of town. And it's like, for him, it was a deal breaker for her to be gone. So it's like, really, we're going to give up all this that we've had, but you're right. She speaks with him with so much love and so much. Like we would have worked it out like that hope of like it, we could have gotten past it. You know, it was only a month. It was only three weeks. We could have worked it out. And
1: it's just hard. It's hard that it ended like it did. The summer hookup that Chris planned on pursuing was with his subordinate at work, Kelly Cochran. The oldest of three siblings, Kelly graduated from Purdue with a bachelor's in liberal arts, majoring in sociology and psychology, with a minor in forensics. She moved to Iron River in late 2013, early 2014, with her husband, Jason. The couple had been together since 2000, when Kelly had graduated from high school. In 2002, they were married. According to the book Where Monsters Hide by M. William Phelps, Kelly said Jason was perfect for the first eight months of marriage. She considered him her soulmate, with the book quoting her as saying that they did everything together. That early happiness didn't last. Kelly described their relationship as abrasive and difficult, alleging that Jason had anger problems and a second side.
0: And Kelly, it's odd that she, they had moved from Hobart, Indiana, where they both had grown up. They lived next door to each other. Jason's four years older than her. So when she was about 16, she said she remembered that, you know, he would be out with the other older teenagers, you know, at a bonfire, you know, go out and just kind of see him.
1: 16 and 20.
0: She said that they didn't have, well, she kept saying, ah. we didn't start dating until I had graduated high school, but we knew of each other and hung in the same circles. But she said, They're I'm still
1: romantic interest flirting going on when she's a minor.
0: I think so. And I think he was more flirting her cuz she said I never really saw him that way and her mom even said I never saw them together but once she graduated they started hanging out for a little bit and then started dating throughout her going to school and then you know this marriage afterwards you go to school she tri- like double majored with a minor in forensics and when she was done with school, he was kind of like, "Okay, well now you stay home with me." And she didn't love that because she, you know, you try to go get your degree to go take this
1: career or something you're excited about and passionate in. I wouldn't go to Purdue and then just sit at home and not use my degrees. I mean, that's an acclaimed university.
0: Right. It's a it's a sought after school to get into, not mm-hmm. to mention graduate from. But then, I mean, it seems like things maybe financially didn't work out for them because they moved to the UP for her to take a job at an Ace Hardware, which seems like you don't need to go six hours north mm-hmm. from your home to get a, you know, sort of a retail job. But the other suspicion was that Jason wanted to live in a state where there was medical marijuana. mm. Sinister Hood will be right back.
1: Chris and Kelly had grown close as the two shared workspaces near one another. HR director Laura Sartori told filmmakers of Dead North that Kelly was a hard worker and a quick learner, but was having serious problems at home, according to Kelly's co-workers. When Laura met with Kelly to see if she could help, Kelly told the head of human resources that Kelly's husband, Jason, tried to kill her and then himself. She also claimed to co-workers that she and Jason were separated, though they remained living together. Well, this is not a conversation you ever want to have to have with your employee, but good on the HR director learning of this and then bringing her into the office. It was It's also a very male-dominated feel, government contracting, so bringing in the—you know one of the other few females that works there to see what she could do. I think that that's the right thing to do.
0: Yeah, it's a good HR director who says, hey, I noticed, you know, people have been saying stuff. Are you OK? And Sartori later said there were times that she came in with marks that I would consider consistent with domestic assault, like mm-hmm. bruises and things. But then she also worked this assembly line job where you're moving and lifting and bonking into stuff. So she's like, in in my th- eyes, they looked like marks of assault, but it could have been something else.
1: Mm-hmm. Wanting to help, Laura considered offering to let Kelly stay in the unused guest house located on her property. Laura's husband, however, didn't think this was a good idea, so the offer was never made. Chris Reagan wasn't the only colleague with whom Kelly was involved. Another of their co-workers, Eric Erickson, was also having an affair with Kelly. Kelly and Eric had a sexual relationship and texted nearly every day, though she more often spent time with Chris. Evenings after work, Kelly would come home, change clothes, and leave Jason at their house while she headed to Chris's apartment for dinner and sex. Their romance extended from the summer into autumn, but Kelly later told police it was never serious or meant to last, even though Chris had asked Kelly to move with him to North Carolina. According to Kelly, she was still married to Jason and planned to stay in the U.P., and she said later to cops, you know, we kept feelings
0: out of it. Chris and I said, we're not going to have feelings. It's just going to be sex. But she does change her story several times and kind of says, well, but I really did love him and I fell for him.
1: Yeah, which is a tale as old as time. I think it's hard for most people to separate those two things. She seemed, though, she has three relationships going on, which that seems exhausting. It's I too much time. I It's in... Yeah, there's only so many hours in a day to be doing all this. So where you even fit in the time to be with three different people is Beyond me.
0: It is. I wonder if, too, because Chris had said, Oh, I'm going to move, you know, November 1st, November 10th, whatever it was, early weeks of November. She started dating or er, hooking up with Eric Erickson, who they met, you know, while on a smoke break at work. Just kind of, he said, I was new back in town after being gone for a while and didn't really have friends, got a little bit of attention. You know, I like the attention. You can't blame him. She got her claws in him quick. She got her closet him quick. Well, they started dating in September. Dating. They started hooking up in September right before she kind of knew Chris was leaving. She'd been with Chris since July, since the summertime. And so I wonder if in her head she's like, okay, well, he's leaving. I got to get a replacement in. True.
1: Chris remained in contact with Terry via phone or text message nearly every single day, even though they were no longer romantically involved. Chris had his sights on a new beginning in Asheville, North Carolina with his oldest son, and starting a new, less physically demanding job. He had applied for and was tentatively hired at an office job with an apartment in Asheville already selected. Part of that new gig required a physical and drug test, scheduled for October 15th, 2014. At 6 a.m., the day before his physical, Chris called Terry to catch up. He discussed his plans to move and the appointment scheduled for the next day. All seemed to be well, and the pair hung up. Without either knowing, that would be the last time they would speak to one another. Chris was not scheduled to work at Oldenburg on October 15th, but when his shift on October 16th started and he was nowhere to be found, his colleagues were confused. It was out of character for Chris to miss work without at least a heads up. When he failed to show up for a second day in a row, colleagues revealed to management that Chris had taken another job in North Carolina and may have skipped town without telling them. It still seems strange for him not to give notice, but once Chris went three days without calling or showing up, his employment was terminated. And that's kind of what the HR person said is she said it was weird at first because he
0: was such a thoughtful employee. He was punctual. His shift was like 5.30 a.m. or sometimes 5.30 or 6 a.m. to like 3 or 4 in the afternoon. So she's like, he was didn't miss it. He wasn't slacking on the job. But also hearing that he was moving to North Carolina, she thought, well, maybe, and it is what it is. You missed three days in a row. No call, no show. We have to fire you.
1: She does say, though, on Dead and Worth that she – has a lot of regret for not contacting authorities sooner because in her gut, she knew this is not like him and felt like something was up and sh- she wished that she had called them. And it's sad because she's like, maybe I could have given them a couple more weeks lead or, you know, and in reality at that point he was already dead, but still it would be, you know, if you, You have that regret of like, I should have just listened to my gut. Mm -hmm. And it's another good example of when your gut is telling you something, follow it. Because what's the worst that happens? You call the police and are like, hey, this is really weird. I don't know. And they're like, okay, well, we'll keep track of that. And then later, it might be a piece of the puzzle that you need. Right. I'm sure the officer would love
0: to open and close a missing persons case in one day where mm-hmm. your boss calls. He's missing. You call him. I'm driving to North Carolina. Tell him fuck off. Like tell him I don't work there anymore. Thanks. And you'd be like, OK, well, I'm better safe than sorry. At least we know he's OK. He just, you know, left us. But it's not her fault. And I'm. It it no. is hard to watch her feel that regret, certainly. And I, I imagine that's a very natural feeling. But hopefully mm-hmm. she can help, you know, work through that. Same with, you know, Terry or whatever, you know, anybody that Within a couple of days, we're like, well, give him the benefit of the doubt. But knowing Mm -hmm. maybe
1: they knew him better than other people. And, if you know, like this is totally out of character. And we've seen that with other cases where family members will try and call and get a missing persons report. And the cops are like, they probably just ran away or they probably just blah, blah, blah. They're like, no, I know this person. I've been married to them for 20 years. They're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. You don't, you've never met them, you know, so don't tell me what you think they're doing. And then so on and so forth. It's usually the same old story, right? It sounds like better safe than sorry. Also out of character was the fact Terry hadn't heard from Chris in days. She waited for a call or text but grew increasingly nervous as the days passed. Terry drove around their small town searching for Chris eventually spotting his 2013 Hyundai Genesis abandoned at a local park and ride parking lot about a five minute drive from Iron River. For a man who loved his car so much that Terry called it his baby, she found it strange to see the car abandoned. And it also looked kind of dusty, like it had been there for a minute. Yeah, it had been there for about two weeks and that's a jaw drop gut punch moment you know in your heart and your gut that this is a terrible sign this yeah and she said she knew as soon as she saw she knew when they went to his apartment that like nah something ain't right i mean you know she's known him since the 80s they've been romantically involved they were best friends talking every day yeah talking every day getting a call at 6 a.m even my husband doesn't call me at 6 (laughs) a.m No one, unless it's an emergency, I'm not answering the phone at 6 a.m., but they had that kind of relationship where, you know, that they were that close. Mm,
0: You're right. It's like a level of intimacy and connectedness, too, because she does say she almost like felt she's like, I felt that he was gone. Like I knew that his energy was gone. And now how can we put this puzzle together and figure out what happened? Mm -hmm.
1: On October 27th, 2014, a distraught Terry headed to the Iron River Police Department. Chief Laura Frizzo was leaving for the day when she saw Terry arrive in tears. Frizzo stayed with Terry, who told the chief she hadn't spoken to Chris since October 14th, nearly two weeks prior. Frizzo sent Sergeant Cindy Barrett along with Terry to go investigate Chris's apartment. Since Terry's parents were Chris's landlords, they were able to gain entry with a key. And this is where a
0: a very important player in this case, Chief Laura Frizzo of the Iron River Police Department, shows up and i think this interaction is sort of emblematic of her entire career because Mm -hmm. she was working uh you know 90 100 hour weeks and was done for the day it was five o'clock She said she's walking to her car, got her head down. You see a car pull up like somebody's fixing to make a complaint. And she's like, Cindy's shift is from 5 p.m. to 3 a.m. Cindy is awesome. She's very capable. She can help this person. Well, she said she's getting in her car. And when Terry gets out and has like tears streaming down her face and goes up and is like looking in the police station and then just puts her face in her hands and starts to cry for like, no, I can't leave turns around and goes in and That's takes a her good inside detective and is like, Hey, what's going on? Like and it's only so she's the chief and there's only four other full time people. I mean, it's such a small department mm-hmm. that everybody's having to pitch in. But she said, you know, Cindy shows up and they both, I think look at each other and say, we know this person isn't overreacting. Like she, because Terry said, here are the following facts. You know, it's been two weeks. I talked to him every day. His car is here. You know, being not just being a hysterical friend who maybe, you know, wasn't getting a call back or a text back yeah. for a couple of days. It a was jealous like jealous ex or yes. something.
1: She seemed very sincere. Her emotions were very raw and Destroyed. genuine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Inside the apartment, things were not as Terry expected. She told Sergeant Barrett on body cam footage. This doesn't look like Chris's apartment at
0: all. It's all disheveled. He was always very neat. Everything was always put away.
1: Clothes, suitcases, packing boxes, and other moving items were set out, ready to be moved. He had even created a to-do list with only some of the items checked off. They also found the paperwork for his new job, indicating that Chris had never gone to his pre-hire physical he had written on a calendar that he planned to resign from Oldenburg on October 14th with two weeks notice making his last day, the 23rd Barrett told 2020 that Chris clearly left the apartment, With
0: full intentions of returning. And yeah, he left like the window open and stuff like stuff. Like he just ran out somewhere and was coming back.
1: I will say. I, I thought it was interesting how involved they allowed Terry to be from From pretty much the jump. I mean, you can see on the body cam footage, she's the one with the keys opening the door to Chris's apartment. You know, I mean, she had them because her parents were the landlords. That doesn't mean she's the landlord. Like, legally, I don't know who's supposed to be opening that key. But she um, is, you know, going through his things, touching things. I was just very surprised at how hands-on, they allowed anyone to be that wasn't a cop.
0: That was interesting. Just having Terry at least go in the residence with her versus leaving her outside. Although, you know, small town jurisdiction, maybe things are a little different that wise as far as the legalities of getting in. Cause I thought, man, can you just go in somebody's house without a warrant? But if they are officially missing person and you filed, you know, there's a filed missing persons report that it's a special allowance that, yeah, you can go into their house to try to, you know, as part of the investigation, same with their car.
1: Yeah, this is complete speculation. If my ex that I was best friends with still had been missing for two weeks and I had keys to his apartment, that probably wouldn't have been the first time that I'd gone over there.
0: The And the book sort of addresses that. Terry says she was going to try to go in his apartment on her own without the cops. But when she went to go and check the lockbox where the spare keys were, it wasn't in there. So then she had to get with her parents to get a key. And then by the time she had that key, she that's when she was already reporting to them, Mm. is kind of what she said. But they were disturbed because the window was open, but it's such a small town and a safe place. They hadn't Mm -hmm. had a... Homicide, an intentional homicide in like 15, 20 years. like a really It was like two in the entire course of Chief Rizzo's 20-year career. That's how rare it was. People slept with their doors open and stuff. So seeing that, you know, window open wasn't like, oh, somebody lo- walked in. It was more like, oh, the weather's nice. He probably mm-hmm. left this open and will come back. He left the fan on. Like things it's like that. It's another
1: just stomach drop moment where you're like, their life was totally interrupted. You know, I mean, yes. it was like they were just – raptured like they're just gone you know and everything that they were doing is still there and she said he especially like being ex-military and everything he was very organized very neat everything had a place i mean he had all these to-do lists he was also considerate and you know professional and had nope i'm giving my notice here and that's what the hr woman at olderberg even said like He would have never just left and not given notice. Like, even if he was quitting, like, he would have worked it out because that's the type of guy he was. So finding the car, then seeing the apartment like this, she says on Dead North, like, I knew he was gone. Yeah. But like you said, you just got to, at this point now, it's like finding out what happened. Right, especially
0: seeing a half-done to-do list yeah, and knowing that in two weeks it was that move. And, you know, you're always like, oh, I got my to-do list. I'm ready. And part of it is checked off. Mm-hmm. It's just a gut, gut punch, like you said. Sinisterhood
1: will be right back. Next, Sergeant Barrett and Terry went to the parking ride where Terry had seen Chris's car. Inside the vehicle, the sergeant found a few odd things including a knee brace that Chris needed to wear at all times, as well as a post-it note in Chris's handwriting, with directions that ended in Brown House. Terry told Sergeant Barrett, Wherever those directions went to was the last place he was. It turned out the directions led to the house of Chris's co-worker, Kelly Cochran, and her husband, Jason.
0: And Terry said that that was a habit of Chris that when he was headed out to go somewhere, he would look up the directions, write them out like turn by turn for himself on a post-it. And she said he loved post-its. He used them all the time. So she said she knew when she saw in that front seat that a post-it was there. She said that wouldn't have just been left in his car after he had gone to the place and left. He would have thrown it away. So if it's in his car, it's like current his current version of GPS. Like that's his version.
1: Yeah, And that's coming from somebody that is your best friend and knows you. And those are the things that cops can't just, you know, a cop can't open the door and be like, oh, this post-it has so much meaning Mm -hmm. because they don't have that knowledge. But somebody very close to them that's like, oh, yeah, post-its were his thing. Something so small as that, you see it and you immediately know, yep that's that's his because that's the type of person he was. And he had recently had knee surgery and had to wear a knee brace all the time. Mm-hmm. And that was in the car too. And all of the things just point to something bad.
0: Right. And Barrett said when she saw the knee brace and she said she saw the parking ride facing this really wooded area, she was worried that Chris had driven himself there and gone out into the woods and yeah. completed suicide. But she said, I, you know, I didn't bring that up right away. I was asking, Hey, is, was he depressed? Would he have any reason? But because he had all these hopeful plans and his apartment was this snapshot of a man in middle of plans. Yeah. It, she said that just didn't make sense. But I think now that we're talking about Barrett and Terry standing there together and looking in the car and how Chief Frizzo was listening to Terry and wanting to encourage her, you know, what information do you have? The three of them, working on this so early i think the case made a lot of strides as early as it could have based just on their collaboration and their willingness to work together which you don't always see in law enforcement and a woman's intuition yeah i was gonna say you don't see with dudes either honestly it is (laughs) it's it's the power of not to mention she frizzo at the time was under the thumb of this shit bird city manager who was making her life literally said women don't belong in law enforcement. Women shouldn't be in positions of power. Women shouldn't be in charge of an investigation. And to see the ones who solve this case truly who take it across the finish line are the women. Mm-hmm. It's impressive. Who, all
1: three of them had these gut instincts mm-hmm. that told them like something's wrong something's here. Up. And, When three women with that much drive team up, something's going to happen. I don't want to say good things because none of this is good, but you're going to make progress. Yeah, you'll get a resolution. Yeah. Hoping to work together to find Chris, Detective Frizzo contacted the Michigan State Police to assist. In an interview on Dead North, the chief recalled how she quickly realized this was not going to be a team effort. MSP considered Terry their number one suspect, implying as much when they questioned her at her home for over two hours, which Terry told filmmakers left her feeling enraged. Frizzo, on the other hand, was adamant Terry hadn't been involved. The seasoned detective had seen the genuine fear and panic in Terry's eyes when she first reported Chris missing. Frizzo's instincts would prove to be correct.
0: And another really remarkable thing about this case is the amount of body cam footage that is available. And because of that, we as, you know, now armchair experts, you know, whatever years later, but can see the perspective of both Chief Frizzo as well as Sergeant Barrett, that in those moments with Terry, When she is at the car, when she is at the apartment, her behavior is absolutely the behavior of a distraught friend Mm -hmm. who's frantically trying to help and not like a sus person who's like, well, don't look over there. Well, don't worry about that. And not trying to put on airs. I mean, she's just blurting things out. She's being herself. So we can see as non-experts what the experts saw, which is like they know what the fuck they're talking about. This lady was not involved.
1: Not knowing the story and watching this, I kept saying to myself, if she ends up being the one that did this, she deserves an Oscar because Mm -hmm. not at not one point did I think she's making it up. This is disingenuine. She is, you know, trying to like lead them astray. It all seemed like a coming from a place of genuine panic, fear, loss, grief, wanting to find this person that they loved. hundred percent sincere. In addition to the post-it note found in Chris's car, Frizzo had obtained security footage from a gas station located between the parking and ride and the Cochrane's house. The footage was from October 14th between 3:30 and 5 p.m. and the gas was the last purchase made with Chris's credit card. The footage showed Chris's vehicle pull in, a man fitting his description got out, gassed up and pulled away. Frizzo thought there was no way Chris had left his car at the parking ride since directions in his car were to Kelly's house. And yeah, if you see the footage,
0: it's just an average, you know, yeah, transaction, gas pump transaction, not exciting. He's wearing jeans, he's in his car, but that does beg the question: Why would your car be if at the parking ride in the opposite direction? But the directions in your car were to a house the other way. You know, it's like it does not make sense in the order of operations unless she goes. The only thing I could think of was: Did he drive back to the parking and ride and then jump in somebody's car? And then go to the house. But in that case, why would he have left the direction? She's just like, it didn't, it didn't add up that it. Or why would he
1: have gotten gas? Yeah. And why
0: would you get gas? None of
1: it adds up. To turn up, and yeah. park
0: your car. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make mm-hmm. sense.
1: Following up on the post it note lead, Sergeant Barrett drove out to the Cochran's home where she was greeted by Jason. Defensive, irritated, and agitated, according to Barrett, Jason told police that Kelly wasn't home. When Barrett asked why she saw a silhouette apparently hiding upstairs, Kelly came down and began talking with Barrett in a friendly way. Kelly said October 14th or 15th was the last time she talked with Chris, and that she had attempted to call and text him since with no answer. She admitted to her sexual relationship with Chris in front of Jason, which Sergeant Barrett found strange. Even stranger was the lack of emotion Jason displayed while Barrett spoke with Kelly. When asked about the parking ride where Chris's car was found, Kelly said she'd never heard of it. Kelly was surprised Chris would leave his car there saying in the past tense, he loved that car. And Barrett was like, I'm sorry. He what girl you be slipping. See, it's that kind of shit that you can't, your brain is already like he's gone and your brain forgets to, you're saying the quiet part out loud. You're talking oh, yeah. because that's what you know and you forget. And it's those little slip ups. It's that one thing that a Sergeant is like, up. Oh, there it is. Okay, yeah. there's there's something here. Also, Jason is just one. He lied immediately. Lied. Immediately, and she says he. She asked, "Why did you? Why did you lie to me?" And then Kelly answers for him and says, "Oh, he just thought that I was going to be in trouble." Yeah.
0: Kelly, it shows very quickly the dynamic between the two that Jason answered and tries to be Mr. Big Shit when he's talking to Sergeant Barrett and kind of standoffish and a dick and everything. And then as soon as Kelly comes in, he's in the back with his arms crossed, quiet, mouth shut. When Sergeant Barrett talks to him, she answers for him. And it's very apparent who runs the house there, who is at least facially. It seems like she's the one that's in charge. And uh, yes, it ain't Cindy Barrett's first day on the job. No. Talking in the past tense about a victim, immediately you're like, oh, interesting.
1: Okay. I think the first red flag is he immediately lied when she got there. I mean, that's sus from the jump. And then the whole thing she said was just bizarre. Kelly was being very like, just matter of fact, like, yeah. I'm having sex with other people. My husband knows this. He's, he's fine with it. And he's just standing there arms crossed a thousand yards stare. It's like, well, he knows, but I don't know if he's cool with it. Like you said, he is
0: right. Cindy Barrett's like his face looked stoic. He didn't really seem accepting or happy about the arrangement, but she seemed very flippant and very happy about the arrangement. And then (laughs) I think Cindy Barrett said she got out of there immediately calls, uh chief frizzo and is like there's something going on like something it, just going immediately on. but you know you walk out and you go i don't know what it is but we got to keep digging because this is this whole interaction was weird
1: oh yeah and it's again that intuition and especially when you've been on the job for as long as she has that's something that's even more trained in you but i think a lay person could have walked up and experienced this and been like something's going on here. These people aren't telling the truth at all. Right. Especially since Sergeant
0: Barrett saw a silhouette in the window and she's like, is anybody else in the house with you? And he's like, no. She's like, really?
1: Cause that's like a Scooby-Doo trick. You're trying to really me. who's walking down the stairs right now. Yeah. Your wife that I just asked to speak with made you a liar in one second. Kelly Cochran was first interviewed at the police station on October 28th, 2014. Friza reminded Kelly, she was free to leave at any time and Kelly acknowledged she was there willingly. Kelly talked for two hours and remained calm, cool, and collected the entire time, according to Frizzo. Kelly described Jason as depressed because he was suffering from kidney disease and chronic pain so intense that he could neither work nor be physically intimate with Kelly. Therefore, Kelly was allowed to engage in sexual relationships with both Chris and Eric, telling interviewers that all three men knew about each other and were okay with it. When the officer suggested Jason may have killed Chris due to jealous anger, Kelly
0: told her, He's not that type of person. He's been angry, he's been depressed, but him being angry and depressed aren't about me and my relationships.
1: Later, when Frizzo asked her to submit a polygraph, Kelly refused. Well, there's another red flag, perhaps? I mean, I don't know, because I'm always like, I wouldn't don't yeah. ever do a polygraph. I'm not taking a polygraph, and I'm sure as shit not going to be talking to somebody without a lawyer present. but you know, I mean, it's bold, <laughs> it's bold. it is and I think from the cases we've covered, it seems like it's more likely that they don't ask for a lawyer when they have something to hide because I think they think it's going to make them look more guilty mm-hmm. when, in fact, it might keep your ass out of jail or at least stop you from further incriminating yourself.
0: You're right. It's often the, especially it's often the folks who think they can outsmart law
1: enforcement or just outsmart reality
0: and (laughs) can have that uh, over, over overinflated sense of ego, which probably does come from getting away with a crime for at least a time. But Mm -hmm. you're right. This behavior of she's not quite flippant, but she is very matter of fact. And it's like, yes, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. I'd love to help you. I'm not doing a polygraph. No, but no, it's not that he's not jealous. It's very calm. Her hands are, she's not shaking. She's not fidgeting whenever the officers leave and she's just in there by herself. Frizzo's like, we're watching her through the camera, watching her through the glass. And she just was sitting there completely still. And it's disturbing to watch
1: Mm -hmm. just, just how cool she is. Officers then interviewed Jason, who behaved very differently than his wife. He cried intermittently throughout the interview and acted upset, anxious, and nervous. Frizzo called it a red flag, telling documentarians from dead north. To me, right away, I thought, this guy knows a lot more than what he was saying. She was particularly interested to hear Jason was, in fact, not okay with his wife's multiple affairs, claiming the choice was either let her cheat or let her go. Well, that doesn't seem like a choice. That seems like an ultimatum. Yeah, it's not a
0: happy marriage. The behavior of Jason is strange when the officers come in because Chief Frizzo really wanted to do these interviews, but the department was so small, so she had to let other officers do the interviews while she kind of watched off and on. And was disturbed to see him just immediately when he sat down was like, I'm going to be up front with you all a few days ago. uh, You know, uh, I checked myself into, you know, a mental health facility and just kind of word vomits at the beginning. It was like, so if I seem weird, um, I have a therapist, don't worry about it. And then intermittently throughout would cry almost like a little kid.
1: I thought, you know, he was kind of overcome with emotion. Like it, it's waves of like realization, grief, fear
0: yeah it was just a strange interaction overall but yeah he was not her saying they all know about each other and it's fine kelly saying all that it's a bit of a different picture when your husband is like i just we were gonna try it out for a while this open marriage thing and i just i told myself if it didn't work out you know i guess i guess we were gonna split up and that was gonna have to be okay
1: and then you know you find yourself years later your wife's Still doing it. Having sex with all sorts of men. And it's like, well, uh, I can either remain here and be a cuck or break it off. And he chose cuck.
0: Yeah, and he just said, like, I just, you know, I'm happy to uh, make her happy, but it really does make me miserable and I hate it. Well, it's like, well, then you're not happy, you know, then you're like. (laughs) And that's pointless. Yeah, yeah. What If
1: if making someone else happy makes you miserable, then you need to find a new person to try and make happy.
0: Right. And I think he was saying, you know, please stop doing this to her. And she was just like ignoring
1: that. I'm not going to. Texts from Jason to Kelly in the days leading up to Chris's disappearance showed Jason distraught and begging, Don't be with other guys.
0: Be with me. And Come home after work and no men for lunch,
1: please. He also told investigators that on October 16th, two days after anyone had last seen Chris, Jason had voluntarily committed himself to a psychiatric facility for suicidal urges, where he stayed for five days. With no confession and no evidence, Kelly and Jason were allowed to leave. Yeah, I mean, at this point,
0: as police, all you have are two people. You think that it's probably the last person that your victim was at their house, but they haven't given you anything that,
1: you know, neither of them cracked
0: in the first interview. No,
1: you do have motive, for sure, because there's been admission of an affair with the missing person Mm -hmm. and... The husband is saying, I'm really not cool with this. And also, I've been having suicidal urges. I've been in a hospital for the past few days. So you might not have enough evidence, but you definitely are like, I feel like I'm headed in the right direction. Like, I need to keep pulling at this thread. Oh, it's definitely the right
0: thread, especially if you the timing of him coming in and saying that he was in a mental health facility two days after The last time this missing person was Mm -hmm. seen like, well, what happened in the two days before you checked yourself in that was so upsetting to you that you felt the need to get professional
1: help? Yeah. Sinisterhood will be right back. Eric Erickson was next on Frizzo's interview list. Kelly's coworker and other lover was cooperative during the interrogation. He even agreed to and passed a polygraph exam. He admitted he and Kelly had a sexual relationship that began in September of 2014. Eric had even showed Kelly the park and ride, an area where they could meet up for sex. Though he enjoyed hooking up with Kelly, Eric warned the chief that Kelly was a liar. This was confirmed when he showed Frizzo a text Kelly had sent him on October 12, 2014, just days before Chris went missing, that read,
0: Meet me at the park and ride, which when they told when sergeant barrett said that's where chris's car was and kelly's like the park in what i've never heard I don't of know that the,
1: when you <laughs> live in this town of three thousand, like Which i probably know drive. every square inch of that town.
0: Yes, it's a five minute drive from your house too it's yeah yes it's not like it's some remote thing it's everybody in town kind of knew about it but it's a it's,
1: stupid thing to lie about because that is a red flag because you'd be like well why don't you know about it it's like, everybody here knows about this. <laughs> right.
0: And then immediately, your other lover, the footage of Eric Erickson's interrogation, it's very friendly. He's clearly doesn't have anything to hide. He's spilling all the beans. And then he just, at some point, hands Chief Frizzo his phone and is like, Good here you go. Them. He's like, scroll through the text. I'll show you every text we sent. And he's like, look at these. Some of the texts, he would get irritated. We said earlier, how does she balance all these people? And he's like, "It. she would ghost me. There would be like a week at a time. She would ghost me. And it was very interesting. And then you have to see him at work. Well, then, yeah, yeah, right. You have to see each other on the smoke rig. But he said, you know, October 12th, they meet up. And then he's like, I didn't hear from her for like a week after that.
1: Yep. Did uh, Frizzo ever ask him why his parents made the horrific decision to name him Eric when his last name was Erickson? The only thing I can think is it's got to be a family name. And I don't just mean that
0: it's your last name, but...
1: Well, yes, Erickson would imply the son of Eric. I'm sure that is their last name. But He's then junior. you also name them Eric?
0: They went for it. They just
1: went It's like a Chris it. Christie situation. I don't like it.
0: Oh, that's true. Yeah, Chris Christie's parents did him the same way.
1: <laughs> well, he deserved it.
0: He did deserve it, but bless Eric
1: Erickson for at least being cooperative in this case. Yeah, for sure. Five months after Chris's disappearance, Frizzo finally had accumulated enough probable cause to ask for a search warrant to search Jason and Kelly's house. On March 5th, 2015, she served the warrant to the Cochran's at home. Body cam footage shows Frizzo and two private investigators searching from room to room. Meanwhile, Kelly and Jason waited next door with their neighbor, David Saylor, at his grandmother's house. David later told interviewers for dead North that Jason was silent, beat red and seemed scared as investigators searched the couple's home. Kelly, meanwhile, talked incessantly though. She became more nervous when David assured her if there was anything to find in there, Chief frizzo would find it. And David is such an easygoing, sweet neighbor to
0: your neighbors. Come over and go, God, Hey, the cops are at mercy. our house. Can the we cops- just hang
1: out for eight hours?
0: So many hours. I mean, the cops didn't leave till 10 p.m. I mean,
1: a very long time to be putting up with. It's not like, hey, can we just come over? Like, we're locked out. There's an active, very stressful investigation happening right next door to you. And you're having to entertain these people while their house is just raided.
0: Meanwhile. Yeah. One of them is just, he was just like, she just wouldn't stop talking. Oh my but that's God. That's that nervous energy yeah. in it. But yeah, him being like, they don't get a warrant if they don't have a reason. And uh, th- he just says it so plain and simple. And he's like, and uh, you know, they're pretty thorough. So I'm sure they'll find anything that's in there. And then it's like, <laughs> she starts shitting
1: bricks all of a sudden. I. It's weird too, that the police were like, Go stay at your neighbor's house when they are investigating a murder they th- or a missing person, they think now. But you know what I mean? I don't know. Put them in the car. Take them down to the station. I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to be involved as the neighbor in this.
0: No, I would not want to be involved. I think the what Chief Frizzo said was they just weren't allowed to stay at the house. And we told them, you can wait outside. But it was served on one of the coldest days of the year, they said, mm. that the temperature, like the high that day was zero. So they were like, they obviously going to sit outside, right. but yeah, you, you don't, you can't come home and you go anywhere you want to, but they didn't have enough PC to arrest them, I guess.
1: I, yeah, I don't know that I would leave now that I think about it because you'd want to be like, close to the situation to have eyes on it. But I think if I was David, David is a nicer person than me. I don't know uh, that I would be like, yeah, come on in, take a seat. Can I get you anything? Will much the police nicer. investigate for a missing person in your home? I imagine if you get that knock on the door, you have to be like,
0: I was actually just leaving. I'm so sorry. Um, and I have to lock my house. There's a gas leak. Actually, you can't come in here. Just yeah. anything. You cannot come in here. There's a fire in my kitchen right that now, that I'm, so you I'm know, Hang leaving. on one second. <laughs> Close the door. Go start the fire. Come back. Yeah. There's a fire. Active fire in my kitchen.
1: Better leave. Better go. During execution of the search warrant, Frizzo and the investigators did find something. Marks on the living room ceiling. They looked like a splatter pattern painted over with white paint. When Frizzo and the private investigators applied luminol, the area tested positive for blood. Samples were taken and sent to the lab for DNA testing. Apparently scared by the police search, next morning, Kelly and Jason were gone. Yeah, the
0: spots on the ceiling, you see that frizzo and the investigators it was two private eyes that she had started working with just because the the department just had so few resources but they were excellent and you know the consummate professionals and they have the markers and their the crime scene techs come and they're marking it so i imagine jason and kelly when you go back home at 10 p.m after the police have left and you see this area where you've No, you've painted blood over on your own ceiling, Mm -hmm. has now has crime scene marks and has clearly been sprayed with luminol. I imagine you grab every duffel bag you have and shove all your shit in it and take off.
1: Yeah, and I get like they couldn't arrest them because they didn't know Mm -hmm. what the blood was at that point or anything. However, it seems like a flight risk to let they know they're aware of this information and nobody has eyes on them. Like maybe you have. Somebody stay outside their home that night until you can get a warrant to arrest them or something. But maybe it's because it's a small department and the Michigan State Police, they'd already severed ties with them because they weren't helping. So it really was like this small task force that's hiring private investigators to help because they can't get the state police to even like realize, Nah, Terry's not the one doing this. Like we there's a whole other thing we need to be investigating here.
0: Right, it's incredible. The uh, even as far as they got with such few resources that they had, and you know, lack of support from you know larger agencies, at least at this point in the investigation. But you're right, yeah. You, you just try to keep eyes on them, and that's the one good thing about these private investigators is they had the foresight to early, early, early before the search warrant was ever executed. They snuck underneath the Cochran's truck and. Stuck a magnet GPS tracker underneath it, so you at least have that.
1: You have that. You you don't have the resources to have somebody, you know, set up a sting operation outside their house all night, but you do have that. It's uh, it's legal. It's it is it's legal for a private investigator to do that,
0: but it's a dangerous game to get out and do that. As Molly, one of the investigators, told uh, twenty twenty. It was extremely risky. We were super nervous because it's very loud to clonk that metal underneath the car, you know, to suck mm-hmm. that magnet up under there. And the host of 2020 said, you know, what do you what were some of the risks? And they were like, being murdered by the people in the <laughs> house coming out with yeah. a gun and killing us. Like yeah. that was the risk, which they're not wrong. It's a Jason was an avid hunter and fisher. He had guns. He had knives. He had that's the other thing they found when they executed this search warrant. A cadre of just uh, w- swords and knives and skull-shaped handles and they did have a .22 rifle. They had a .22. They admitted to having these weapons because, you know, you're hunting, whatever. Mm-hmm. But knowing, even before knowing all that, you can assume if you're living out in the UP, you at least have one gun to shoot a bear or a coyote or something. I don't know.
1: Even if you don't have weapons, which I think living out there, everyone does, you know that you're investigating some- someone for a crime. So at the very least... You know, you don't know what they're capable of. If they're right. capable of have a, being involved in a missing person case, like, immediately, that's a scary situation. Private investigators, like, repo people that have Shout to go out. get cars and shit from, like, people's houses that are like, I'll be goddamned if you're taking my car. Like, that, those are very scary jobs or um, people that, like, jump bail and are trying to oh, go yeah. find people, like bounty hunters. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. All any that, of that stuff.
0: Yeah. Or like friends of mine that have, that are family law attorneys or whatever, or even PI attorneys that they have private investigators for their clients. And you're automatically in such a, it's just such a strenuous stressful situation because no matter what you as the investigator are trying to get something that they very much don't want yeah. you to get which you're is information bad guy yes, for in, sure. instantaneously yes. by identifying your career immediately you're a target yes and that is terrifying and yet they still do it and mm-hmm. they were uh, came in clutch for chief frizzo in this you know kind of small uh police department when they needed him. good for them
1: Jason and Kelly packed whatever they could in their truck in the early morning hours after police left and headed back to Indiana. With her suspects having skipped town, Frizzo went to chat with their neighbors, the sailors. David's grandmother told Frizzo that in mid-October, right around the time Chris went missing, she heard a gunshot in the night. She later saw two cars with their headlights on and heard a voice screaming, Let's get the hell out of here! Her grandson David also noticed something weird about the Cochranes. They had been remodeling at odd hours, sometimes running power tools like reciprocating saws and skill saws at two or three o'clock in the morning, around mid-October. They had also burned some items in a barrel in their backyard during that time. Another neighbor told filmmakers for Dead North that he confronted them about the smell, asking, What the heck are you burning? A man across the street told interviewers, It was real foul. The whole neighborhood stunk. The Cochranes put the fire out after the neighbors threatened to call police. Yeah, when the one neighbor went over there and was like, what the hell
0: is that? Kelly's like, oh, I'm burning brush. He was like, no, you are not not burning brush. That
1: doesn't smell like brush. We all know what a campfire smells like. Oh, yeah. He said, I've lived here my entire life. I've burned brush
0: every single winter, every single time. It does not smell like that. Mm-mm. And if you don't. and But the kind of an asshole about it. She was kind of an asshole about it. like, well, we're just burning it. And he's like, put it out or I'm calling the cops. OK, OK, we'll put it
1: out. We'll put it out. But
0: power tools at two or three in the morning.
1: Even if you're not doing something nefarious, that should be a crime. Don't run a fucking yeah. power tool at 3 a.m. Living next door to somebody
0: it's rude as hell but also it attracts a lot of attention. They it's yeah. as loud as it is, it wasn't and even if your house isn't right next door because there's a little bit of space, you know they're spaced out a little bit, it's still obvious when it is in the absolute silence of the middle of the
1: night. Yes, you live out in the wilderness. It's you're not in a bustling city with like city noises to to mm-hmm. mask stuff. It m- reminds me a lot of Paul Flores. Oh yeah, right, where you're like thinking you
0: nobody's paying attention but it's like Mm -hmm. your neighbors see you they hear you too
1: digging up your backyard like the fucking burbs at 2 a.m is gonna draw some attention to you
0: yeah people are paying attention and you're right maybe coming from hobart indiana which is not like a huge town but it is more populated maybe a little bit louder you might think oh we can get away with stuff but this down to the point that david Saylor was like it was reciprocating so i know what it
1: sounds like like i can recognize the sound I also think, though, even if you're aware that it's super loud, if you are trying to dispose of something and it's a time-sensitive manner, you're kind of like, well, I'm going to do what I'm going to do.
0: Yeah, we have to get it done right now. And it's interesting that all of these—not interesting, and I don't think it's coincidental—all of these occasions of the gunshot, the screaming, the reciprocating, the burning all happen right at mid-October.
1: Yeah, it— Pretty much lays out the timeline and events of what happened. Yeah. Sinister Hood will be right back. Just a little content warning. This next segment has discussions of cannibalism. The Cochranes also hosted a barbecue around mid-October, inviting their neighbors to join a feast with what David Saylor estimated was at least $150, $200 worth of meat. This was strange because, according to David, the Cochrans were always low on funds and had never hosted a cookout like that before. Even stranger was the meat in their burgers. David told interviewers, It was definitely something I never ate before.
0: It was like a transparent kind of like meat, like lobster or shrimp. It had the texture of it,
1: like a soft firmness of it. Well, well, if, if everyone listening is like me... Your uh, jaw is a gape right now Mm -hmm. because this is worst case scenario. Like this is, it takes this to a whole other level. Yes, of diabolical.
0: Yes, like like I said at the beginning, the depths of evil that people are willing to go to and pusomeness yeah an unsuspecting neighbors. and oh my God, and it wasn't just the sailors, too. He's you know, it's the people across the street, the yeah. people down the street, they were being putting on this air that they were being so generous and having so much fun. But then they're serving this strange meat, which uh. I out of curiosity was researching and trying to figure out, is there a description of it and it just sort of depends on the part. But there have been descriptions of human meat having a
1: so, like a soft firmness, kind of more of a transparent look, clear Depending. look, as opposed to um, like beef or something like that. Yeah, I imagine it's it depends, and the whole thing makes my stomach hurt to even think yeah. about. So we won't get into too many details, Not too many details, but just we all idea. understand our bodies, and there's different parts, and yeah. different parts look like different things. Yeah. David eventually concluded. That the meat was the dismembered remains of Chris Reagan, telling interviewers for Dead North, I believe we ate him. David suffered long-lasting effects from the incident. He experienced weight loss and had issues trusting friends, saying, It changed me 100%. Chief Frizzo, meanwhile, was faced with the possibility that her missing person was actually a murder victim whose killers had just fled town. So what do we think? Well, very briefly
0: on David Saylor, it, he really does seem impacted by this. Oh my God, you would this be. would
1: destroy me to know that th- I had b- unknowingly been giving something like this, the anger and like, but also just- Betrayal. Yes, and, and knowing that you did that. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I can't, I don't even, the emotions you must have are overwhelming and unimaginable. And I totally agree that, it would change you a hundred percent. Yeah. It sounded
0: like when he, his describing his symptoms sounded like a PTSD where he's like, I have difficulty taking food from people. It's hard for me to trust friends. And it's, I think his, small, the small part in this as being yet another victim of the Cochranes just shows just the unnecessary cruelty that they are obviously willing to unleash onto people that it's not enough that it sounds like you probably shot this person. It sounds like you probably dismembered this person. It sounds like you probably burned some parts of evidence. That's all heinous things. But then to drag more victims into it, more neighbors into it and do that to them, it's just... Obviously, David Saylor is not the biggest victim here, but it's just yet another victim of the Cochranes and just Mm -hmm. showing what obviously what they're capable of doing, what they're the depths that they're willing to go.
1: Doesn't matter who they hurt as long as they're covering their own ass.
0: That's what it seems like. Very selfish. And I'm sure for Chief Frizzo, your stomach just drops because you're like. It is worst case scenario. She had by, you know, this point, this was, you know, twenty March 2015. By this point, Chris Jr. had come through town. So she had had a chance to meet him. And I think, you know, that becomes a more personalized case, not to mention working with Terry, who loved him so much. But she said when they cleaned out his apartment that for the longest Chief Frizzo had... Chris Reagan's dog tags from his military service that she had gotten out of there only because she said, I didn't want him to get lost or misplaced. I wanted to make sure the family got them. And when Chris Reagan came, she tried to said, Hey, junior came to clean out his dad's apartment. She said, Oh, Hey, here's your da- dad's dog tags. And he kind of said, you know, you keep them and give them back. And I think having that and having met him and having as personally, as she took this case, that's gotta be such a a feeling of, Oh, I had so much hope that we would find you alive. But now I just have this resolve to find you and for God's sake, stop these fucking people.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I think from the very beginning, this was a very personal case for Frizzo sitting across from someone that is just broken and they're telling you all these things, you know, and it's late at night and it's just like one female to another, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like. It's would be one of those cases that would affect you and really stick with you and become like almost an obsession that you're like, mm-hmm. I will not stop until I find his remains so his family can have something to bury. They can have some type of closure.
0: And it really did come, become an obsession with her to the point that well, this shitbird city manager I talked about earlier, and that's his official name is the shitbird city manager because he sucks. That's on but his he- name tag. It's going to be on his name tag. I mean, uh, he resigned and disgraced. One of many jobs he's resigned and disgraced from, but kind of put the pressure on her and saying, like, you're spending too much time on this. It's like a waste of departmental resources. When she'd come in and added policies and procedures that they never had before, like really improved this police department. And you see her get choked up over this case and him say... Well, women, they get so emotional. They're going to cry versus me seeing her get. I mean, we cry about the cases we cover here and we're not even working one to one with victims in ninety nine point nine nine percent of the cases. So the fact that she's working not only that close with Terry, but now in contact with Chris Jr. And of course, she's going to be emotional about it. And I think it's disgusting to be uh, to shit on somebody, a law enforcement professional or whoever who becomes involved in a, such a uh, empathetic way with the case that they want to work it. And it wasn't like, okay, well, crime spiked in Iron River while she was focused right. on I'm, the case. I was
1: going to say, no. you still have 3000 people living <laughs> there. Fine. It's, this is the only thing probably to work on, except for maybe some small things here and there. Like crime, theft, whatever, you yeah. know, she said they
0: had, and even they had a large drug issue in Iron River and she worked instead of having, the offenders be placed in jail and in custody, which is what was happening before. She worked on treatment programs for offenders. So figuring out ways to police in more of a community way, I mean, I think... For all of the complaints that we have as a society for that we need criminal justice reform or law enforcement reform, on a micro scale, I think Laura Frizzo is doing it exactly right. And it's yeah. a shame that in the background she was getting shit on by a male, you know, superior essentially who was kind of trying to undermine her. And thank God she didn't let that stop her and that said, No, I am still going to pursue this. I'm still gonna go after these people because this is exactly the kind of people we want off of the street, not somebody, you know, locked up. You don't want somebody who has a a meth addiction or an oxy addiction, just locked up all the time. You want them to get the treatment. These type of people, that's who she's running down. Mm -hmm. Like she's doing it
1: right. And to be criticized for showing emotion is, I mean, it's the patriarchy. It's the whole, I mean, you know, men are raised to think emotion equals weakness and we can't show that. I would say if you can be involved in a case like this and sit across from Terry O'Donnell and meet his son and everything, and you have no emotion about it, you're in the wrong job. I think you you should have. I mean, of Passion. course, there's a, a line I'm sure all people in law enforcement have to manage of not getting too involved to where you can't, you know, complete your duties, but also having compassion Mm -hmm. and empathy for what people are going through so you don't seem like just a cold monster with no bedside manner.
0: Right. Some robot. And yeah, you're right. There's definitely a line between compassion and compassion fatigue, but it's that's something to address on the mental health of the officers and things like that. Mm -hmm. If you see their performance dwindling, but you're right on the front end, being passionate, empathetic and an active listener will absolutely just make you a better investigator. I think, I don't know. What do I know? But,
1: and I think it will also allow for people like Terry to feel more comfortable opening up to you. And, you know, not even like maybe consciously, but just, you know, when she's in Chris's apartment with Sergeant Barrett, I think she feels like a sense of safety in the sense that Barrett believes her and is there to help. And, you know, I mean, it's not safe in the sense that she knows something terrible has happened to her loved one. But uh, she feels like the space to share information is a safe one.
0: Certainly. And we can also see using this case as a, a case study. The effectiveness of both Chief Frizzo and Cindy Barrett, and we'll talk about other uh, law enforcement investigators in the next part, how effective that was when they were going in with like active listening versus a two hour wasted interview that did nothing but traumatize Terry. Mm -hmm.
1: You know, well, it was her, it was the girlfriend. It's like, did you even fucking look at evidence? It's such an easy thing to jump to, and it's not even like, You don't have any evidence. Yeah. And then you're just going to question this woman for two hours and imply that she was just a a sore ex-girlfriend that is mad that, you know, her lover is moving across the country or whatever. Like, come on. dig a little deeper. Do your your job.
0: Certainly. And it's – I mean, when a client would come in when I was, you know, working at legal aid or practicing law or whatever – one-to-one clients coming into you you, they've written down sort of what you they think their issue is but especially when i worked with older adults who didn't you know you don't come in and say hello i'm the victim of elder abuse like they don't immediately label themselves that Mm -hmm. terry o'donnell might have not have known to come in and say hello my boyfriend has definitely been you know missing probably murdered she just knew she just could tell you what she could tell you in the way she said it and having that initial interaction and gleaning as much information as you can in that initial interaction I think is so so valuable and despite the fact that they did get a pretty late start to this investigation you know two weeks is an yeah. excellent lead time if you're a murderer and you need to hide your crime but despite they getting as close as they have and what their the amount of ground they could make as quickly as they did I think was just a testament to that good listening and good police work yeah
1: Brizzo says in dead north too that you can go to all the training you want to be in law enforcement, but if you don't have just that innate quality of kind of being able to read people and look at someone and tell if they're telling the truth or not, you can't teach that a hundred percent. If you're just born with that kind of quality, like she was, then you're going to be a good chief.
0: Certainly. And she came from a a policing family. Her uncle was a police officer in Wisconsin and, you know, recalled him as a kid and everything. So it's like that, it's in you, it's in your blood, it's in your DNA and doing it the right way and still choosing to do it in a kind way. I think is fantastic. We could talk about how great of a chief Laura Frizzo is for this whole episode, but we'll get more into it, I think, in part two.
1: Yes, we will. We'll get into all of how this, the rest of it plays out and trials and all of that in part two. So stay tuned for next week. Well, if you like our free episodes, you'll love our Patreon bonus content. You can join for free to see what we're up to next or dive into over 500 hours of bonus content. Like our recent true crime headlines, we discuss the high-profile case that saw acclaimed forensic scientist Dr. Henry Lee found liable for fabricating evidence in a murder case. We also break down the timeline surrounding Carly Russell's falsified claims that she was kidnapped and assaulted. And for recent patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show and make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out.
0: You can also head to Sinisterhood.com and click shop on the top banner to check out Sinisterhood merch like t-shirts, mugs, totes, stickers, and even clothes for your kiddos.
1: While you're there, you can also review the show, follow us on socials, and check out the episode description for more fun like topic-based playlists and links to live show tickets. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod, and like us on Facebook
0: at Sinisterhood. You can get full episodes on YouTube, as well as video versions of all of our Freaky Friday guest interviews and a couple of fun clips at uh, youtubecom slash Podcast. We're also on TikTok and you can head over to Cameo where you can order a custom personalized video shout out. We can say happy birthday, good luck, happy anniversary, you got this, whatever you want us to say, we would love to deliver your message for you. So head over to Cameo.com and search Sinisterhood. Where are you at on the computer, Christy?
1: I am on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace and TikTok at Christy or GTFO. Heather? I'm pretty much everywhere at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey,
0: everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shoutouts. Catherine Noble. Aaron, Kelly Bryant.
1: Suspicious Shrub. Eva Alvarez. Lauren. Katie Polakak. Vanessa Emily Abplanout. Elizabeth Allison O'Neill Natasha Stewart Elise Hustler Sarah Hollowell Jen Johnson Alexandra Grubel. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We literally could not do this without you. We hope we pronounced all your names correctly. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. <laughs> Sinister